I'm Dave Laird. I'm Matt Luter. I'm Matt Booker. And when I came to after the conference, I was flat on my back on the beach in the freezing sand, and it was raining out of a low sky, and the tide was way out. Yet, son. Nice. Uh, <laughs> That's not actually true, but it's metaphorical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Nice, anyway. nicely presented there, Matt Booker. Uh, I mean, I mean, who's to say what's true? But you know. <laughs> well, welcome to episode thirty-nine, everybody. Uh, this is a special conference review episode. The the twenty eighteen David Foster Wallace conference just wrapped recently in uh, normal. Bloomington, Illinois. I was not there, of course, and so I'm just going to spend this episode uh, listening and complaining about all the fun I missed out on. Uh, but we have a special guest, uh, Matt Luter, making a feature appearance again. You guys are all familiar with Matt Luter, great friend of the show and and has been on several times before. Matt, welcome. Thanks for joining us, buddy. It's good to have you. Glad to be here, y'all. More than a friend of the pod, I would say a honorary member of the pod. <laughs> yeah, getting there, hey? Three ep- three episodes there, Luter. Oh shucks. And, and Matt <laughs> is also record. one of the. Uh, he's a member of the special club, which I think. And correct me if I'm wrong. We can edit this out, but I think that Matt has attended every David Foster Wallace conference in Illinois State. I have, and I uh, Daniel Ely also has. Danielle, we were talking that's right. about this. Oh yeah, yeah. I was joking that we need to get. Uh, you know, if not if not T-shirts, something like the uh, the old Saturday Night Live bit about the uh, the the five timer jacket. Yes, the five timer club. Yeah, yes. we could make something <laughs> like that happen, maybe. <laughs> it's a smoking jacket, right? It's I, like a smoking I think jacket. it is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, well, next year you'll be part of the six timer club, so that's that's really special. <laughs> um, and and if there's anyone else out there, we're forgetting that has been there every year. I mean, I know there's several people who have been to a lot of these, um, but I, I don't know everyone, obviously. So, like, if someone else has been to to every, well, <laughs> believe it or not, if someone else has been to everyone, like, write in and let us know so we can um, add them to the smoking jacket club. <laughs> At the very least, we should get a, get buttons made or something or stickers. I Hell don't yeah! Know. Hell yeah! A ribbon, maybe a ribbon. <laughs> Um, Baldrick, do you know what a Baldrick is? No, it's a cudgel, maybe. Is it a Baldrick? No, Baldrick is like one of those like banners that goes across your chest, like oh, but you like wear a under a suit. Well, it's like a sash, but you wear a suit coat over it. Okay. Oh. Maybe we'll get Matt. A, doesn't wear a suit coat that often that I've seen, but maybe we get a Baldrick. <laughs> um. So I, I one I wanted Matt to be on the show today because we um. We didn't have full coverage at this conference, uh, Dave. You know, I did not show up until like dinner on Thursday. So I missed like the whole first round of panels. And, um, you know, Matt went to a bunch of other stuff that I didn't go to. And so I felt like we needed at least one other person on the show to talk about um, the conference mm. since, you know, yeah, you, you were not there. I'm useless here. Well, in this case, um, you're not 100% useless, <laughs> but. Um, <laughs> It's gonna be it's gonna be difficult for you to talk about a conference that you didn't attend. Although I have I have often talked about books that I did not read. Oh, so. well, there you go. I'll fake my way through it. 
fake it till you make it. <laughs> Although I did, I did see um, the some of Samantha Wallace's presentation on the Facebook Live and Mike Miley's as well. So uh, I got a, I well, got a slight glimpse. I got a slight glimpse. Now that counts. I think, and and that's one of the good things about this conference was that they did try to broadcast every panel. I think. Yeah, I really appreciated that. Um, let me let me just back up a little bit and say, like, I think that this conference has become the sort of centerpiece of David Foster Wallace studies. Yeah, and that, and that you know we have had other conferences around the world in which a lot of prominent academics have attended, but. To, for my money, there's only one that is um, like this, and especially spread across, you know, three days and having all of these panels and all of these people there. Now, five years, um, there's just really nothing else like it. And, you know, there's part of it that's the conference, and then there's the other part of it that is the kind of social aspect of seeing a lot of the same people mm-hmm. where it really does feel like a summer camp or, or family reunion. I mean, Matt, Dave, what, what, both of you, like, give me your, like, overall impression of, like, what, what's the, like, place of the conference? Oh, gosh. Uh, I would agree that it is sort of um, centerpiece is a good word, Matt. I, I think of it as um, where we can sort of, in a few days, just get a sense of what a lot of people who are thinking deeply about Wallace are thinking, you know, I, I think you made the comment, uh, that you could tell sort of three or four years ago that a lot of what was on people's minds within this community was what do we do with fandom and what do we do with, um, sort of bringing together academics and non-academics who are interested in Wallace. And Mm. this year and last, Uh, There's been a lot of discussion of gender, of representation, of thinking about Wallace in the light of uh, the Me Too movement and uh, the questions that it raises. So, um, yeah, I I think you can sort of in a few days time get a sense of of trends in in what it's like like the pulse of the Wallace community, I guess, in a way. Sure, sure. And, and we're going to talk a lot more about that, like in terms of what uh, everyone was talking about this year at the conference. And I think that that's an important thing to try to document. Um, and I, I think there were some really interesting things that came up in, in that regard. So more to come on that. I mean, Dave, can you just give us like your, your kind of um, perspective of, of what it feels like to be there and not to be there and <laughs> watch on live stream? And- um. So for me at this point in my life, um, the co- going to the conference is way more about the social uh, friendship, fun aspect of the people I've met there over the years and just getting to hang out than it is about the content. And obviously the content is more is, is important to me and I care about it. Uh, otherwise, I probably wouldn't have spent 40 episodes talking about this stuff. Um, but truly, like when I had the realization last year in downtown Bloomington that I wouldn't be coming next year on the last day of the conference, I was just gutted about the, like the fun that I was going to miss out on with you guys hanging out, uh, and, and being at the, the drink tank Airbnb house as it's come to be called. Um, so when I first started going to these conferences back in 2014, 
you know, it was it was all about the content for me. I was a master's student at the time. I was sort of really just starting early work on my thesis. And it was like, okay, I'm just going to go learn a whole bunch of stuff. And hopefully I can apply it to, to my research and to my work. Um, but now, you know, four years later, my reasons for going back are are in some ways quite different. Um, so, so having to miss it this year was, was, uh, definitely a bummer. Um, but I appreciate the, the frequent updates, uh, via text, especially from you, Matt Luter. Thanks for that. Uh, <laughs> following on Twitter was great. The Facebook live stuff was, was awesome too, but I will say it was a pretty dark weekend for me last weekend because in addition to knowing that I was missing out on the conference, my favorite game, Netrunner, uh, uh, I was going to bring this up, but <laughs> it, it was announced that the, the company that makes it can no longer support it due to licensing issues with the previous company who owns the rights. So they announced like the death of Netrunner, uh, no more future products, tournaments, anything like that. So I was like, I was pretty, I've been pretty unhinged in the last week. So it was like all the, like my two favorite communities in one weekend, I was sort of grieving the loss of them in a way. So mm-hmm. That's, uh, that's tough, that was my man. thinking about it. <laughs> mm. that's, that's really tough. And one other note I would say about kind of an overall um, sense of the conference is that there was, uh, you know, several people who were not there this year, including um, Charlie Harris, who was on the, the, the podcast last mm-hmm. year during the conference. You know, we had the live episode with uh, Jim Plath and Charlie Harris and, um, you know, I, I don't know if we've mentioned this on the show, but Charlie passed away we did at mention the end it, yeah. of October, yeah. beginning of November last year. And this year's conference was sort of dedicated to him. And there, so there was like a little memorial thing for him. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was great to see um, Victoria Harris there. Um, but that, that was another sort of, you know, pretty significant change yeah. for me uh-huh. and for a lot of other people too, who looked forward to, you know, spending some time with Charlie Harris at the, at the conference. Mm-hmm. Um, but I want to run through like some of the panel stuff. Cause I, I did go to as many as I could and write down some notes and I kind of want to go um, chronologically if we can and um, talk about some of the work and then sort of come back to some of the more general, you know, what people were talking about in the hallway type mm-hmm. stuff, the scoops um, the- and, we're scoop, really. Right. I'm here for the scoops, you guys. The gossip. Right. We're gonna have a separate gossip <laughs> podcast, preferably. Um, and actually, Matt Luter is a good place to start because I believe he had the first panel of the conference was his oh, on nice. Thursday. Get it over with. Like right at lunchtime, him and uh, Matt Prout, and uh, Matt. I believe that was his first um, conference, right? For Wallace, he's a PhD student at. Bristol, Bristol University yeah. in the in the UK, so he maybe maybe he attended that Bristol conference a couple of years ago um, on Wallace, but this is the first time I had met him, and he was a really fantastic guy, and I'm really sad that I missed um, Matt's paper on Octet and then uh, Matt Prout's paper. I mean, can you give us a sense of what what Matt Prout's was out, and then tell us also a little bit about your paper, Matt? Sure. Um- I would say that's three mats to keep track of, by the way. Yeah, we've we've got we've got a lot of mats. Here's the first scoop, Matt. Matt Booker, why were you so late on day one? What held you up? Your flight, you know, flight I, I no 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 no. I booked my travel like five months ago, and I had this memory that the conference would be 
like it didn't start at the right time. I think that I thought it would go all day Friday, all day Saturday, and it ended up going like half day Thursday, all day Friday, half day Saturday. Oh, I see. And so I think I just had a, a mistake, like a mistaken idea of when the the conference would actually be held. You got rused. Um, you self rused. I got rused, and you <laughs> know another thing cruise. different. From, well, whatever. All right, sorry to sorry to have this um, interjection, Matt. If you want to go back to talking about your yeah. panel, uh, well, that that coughing fit's over. So, so I, I would say the other kind of trend that I I heard a lot of, other than gender representation, Me Too things, was uh, the post critical, and I say that because it was the subject of the panel that Matt. Uh, that Matt Prout and I were on, and then also uh, Grace Chipperfield's paper, which I really liked a lot. Uh, I would put in this category too. Um, So this is, uh, and and I'm really interested in this stuff, the idea that um, coming out of Rita Felsky, Eve Sedgwick, a few other people's work, the idea that... um, the default mode in criticism for so long has been sort of uh, has has been critique. The idea of looking to what a uh, a text fails to do, or looking at how it um, interacts with much bigger systems of of power of of other sorts of cultural influence and discourse, and so. Um, what I was getting at uh, just with Octet was, uh, first off, I'll mention, I was really freaked out by, I, I've always been sort of intimidated by Octet. And so I kind of said, well, let's just let's just go for it. Let's just commit to trying this out, the post-critical take on Octet. And so I, uh, with some trepidation, uh, did this whole thing of what interests me about that story is... Um, how for the first half of it, which very few people talk about, most people talk about the the last pop quiz of the story when the story kind of turns in on itself and starts falling apart. Mm-hmm. But for the whole first half of it, uh, there are these weird moments where the narrator doesn't seem to know everything about what he has created. There's a lot of weird maybes and some weird moments of ambiguity. And so I was getting at what this reminds me of far more than the author as authority figure, far more as the author as someone trying to interact with great sincerity is he sounds kind of like kind of like a teacher who's highlighting ambiguity and then encouraging people to to deal with that and think about it through uh, posing those little questions at the end of the the pop quizzes. And so that's what I was getting at was the idea of reading octet where maybe the narrator is not so much a writer or a reader, but something more like a teacher. Um, and then, uh, that's what I was getting at there. Um, Matt Prout's paper. I, I liked a lot. It was working with a good bit more, uh, more theory and particularly more narratological theory than I was. Um, but he was also focusing on on brief interviews and the idea of characters trying to read each other within that book almost as if they were texts and um, how that sort of 
creates a lot of the self-consciousness and the difficulty with, with interaction that Wallace is interested in. So, um, yeah, that was, that's my, my attempt to summarize what was a, a really good, but, but, um, I think more complex paper than mine. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and his title is something about like the hermeneutics of suspicion. Yes. And I think to like really do, um, him justice we would have to have him on separately just to dive into it because it seems like pretty deep but your paper about um that kind of narrator as teacher i thought was also super interesting concept because there was a lot of other stuff going on about pedagogy and teaching at the conference Mm -hmm. and um you know it's especially hard to avoid when you're sitting in a room that David Foster Wallace taught a class in, you know, like you're at Illinois state in a classroom, um, in the English department and like being very aware of being like a student and then having someone (laughs) like listen to a paper and you're taking notes. Like I'm very aware of this, like in more than any other like academic conference that I've been to where it's usually in like a, you know, hotel setting. There's something different about, you know, I, I, did that occur to you at all, Matt? Like when you were there? Um, it, it did not, uh, not so much. I mean, (laughs) fair enough, fair enough. (laughs) Um, you know, the, uh, the, the chairs are less comfortable when you're (laughs) doing this in a classroom (laughs) setting. That's true. All right, we're going to cut that out. Um, now, at the, no. at the same time you were doing that panel, I, um, there was another panel going on, which was um, one of our rival podcasts, <laughs> the And But So Show, had a, a panel. So none of us attended that one, but I did get to meet Colleen from that show. And um, I only wish that I had been able to uh, attend their panel because it was called Hate Reading Infinite Jest. <laughs> Can we even call them a rival podcast? They have zero episodes so far. <laughs> Well, they had, they said they had a sneak peek at that point, but I mean, I think at the conference, Colleen set up the feed so that there is at least a, I think there's a teaser now All in right. there and, but so show, oh, cool. but, but well, I do want to give them a plug. So like if down the road, if you want to go listen to, um, you know, uh, two women hate read infinite jest, <laughs> go check out and, but so show Which, in that's the a great Apple, name, I think. Apple podcast. I'm very impressed with the title. I met Colleen last year and she showed up wearing a shirt that said, I haven't read infinite jest, which I thought was really rad. That's a cool move (laughs) to do at a conference about Wallace. Um, And we had a good chat on the way to Medici's one day about what it's like to podcast about this stuff. So I look forward to, to their future releases. Yes. I hope that we, um, we get to, um, hear more about their show. Yeah. I hope they just Um, put us on blast the whole time and Wallace. Uh, that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> so, um, Matt, after the, your panel, w- did you go to another panel or did you just like go and, um, collapse or w- what was your plan? Um, actually I'm, I'm looking at the schedule right now. What I, what I went to next was, you know, one interesting thing about this conference is there is the occasional panel on, uh, contemporary writing that is not, by Wallace, but is by folks who are often part of the same conversation, folks who are kind of Wallace adjacent. Mm-hmm. Um, right, right. Went to that, uh, heard a, uh, a paper on, on Jonathan Lethem on Chronic City, Dave. One hey, of I favorites. saw that. I know mm-hmm. I saw that in the, in the loadout and I was pretty psyched. Tell yeah, me more. Um, so 
Um, I just have to give a plug for Matt Luter's book, Understanding Jonathan Lethem, <laughs> um, as why you might have an interest in this panel. Yeah, you're the you're the you're the Marshall Boswell of of uh, Lethem studies, Matt Luter. If if you say so, Dave, you say so. <laughs> I, I do, and I have said that before. <laughs> I stand by it. But uh, um, paper about the the sort of how the virtual reality world. Um, works in that uh in that novel the other uh the other paper in that panel i really liked uh, it was about kerouac i am not a huge kerouac guy but um this uh it was a paper on the the french canadianness of kerouac oh yeah uh, i saw the saw the title of that cool and um basically did some really interesting historical work with how the term whiteness has been constructed and defined uh, in in Canada over time. And so um, if I'm summarizing it correctly, was was sort of getting at the idea that uh, given some cultural attitudes within um, his uh, part of the country at the time, it's possible that Kerouac would have grown up not thinking of himself necessarily as white. Hmm. but as a kind of an ethnic other, which then kind of sheds new light on something like uh, in On the Road, in other writing by Kerouac, in which he is doing some identifying with the other in ways that I know some readers find off-putting. Um, hmm. Really, I you know, one of, one of my favorite papers I heard uh, this year, I would wow. say. Hmm. Cool. Did you oh, were, super interesting. Did you get cited in the Chronic City paper? Um, I did and if, not. And if so, not, why? <laughs> I, I, I did not, and that is okay. And that's not why I went to the panel. I went. Did to, I, I get cited go, in the in the Lethem paper? <laughs> uh, you did. You did not either, Dave. We. I that's went to bullshit. the panel that's to, to hear some. <laughs> Where's this I went guy to the panel from? to hear someone talk about Jonathan Lethem, not to. <laughs> That's the only Vanity reason I would have gone, man. Vanity. Okay. Um, <laughs> I, I'm like, I have a medium strong interest still in Kerouac and the Beats and um, probably Gary Snyder in particular. I don't know if I've ever given a plug for this, but like one of my all time favorite audio books is um, the on the road version read by Matt Dillon. Hmm. So hmm. I think if you're look, if you've never read on the road and you would let, you don't want to read it, but you would be up for listening to That's it. Where I'm at. Go find, go find the Matt Dillon version of it. Cause he's a performer and we had an audiobook guy at the conference. Hint, hint. We'll get to that in a minute. Um, but like, I'm super interested in this French Canadian connection. Cause I don't know that anyone has really made the same connection to infinite jest. And I don't know if he really did that. It sounds like he didn't do that in the panel per se, Not but really. this I, idea of the other, but. Uh, he didn't really draw that connection, but I was, I was thinking it did sort of still kind of serendipitously fit really nicely in the conference. I mean, like when we're, when we are talking about infinite jest, we find ourselves talking about French Canadians, don't we? So I do. Yeah, for real. So there were other Thursday panels. I want to keep going. Um, out of respect for people's time, but we, I missed Chiara Scarlato also had a panel at that time and Emilio and Emilio, a friend of the pod had a really great um, paper about the copy editing of infinite jest. 
And Kiara, who I should mention, give a shout out to, is in Austin right now. And I hung out with yesterday. Oh, cool. Um, and she gave a great paper about Foucault, which I missed, but she sent it to me and I read it. And it's amazing. Um, so if you're into Foucault, follow up with uh, Chiara Scarlato from Italy. Uh, it was her. It was amazing because it was also her like first time in the U.S. Mm. And there's always people at the conference like this, you know, where it's their first time, <laughs> not only in Illinois but like in the U.S. Right. Did she come um, with Pia from Italy? P- Pia was yeah, there. Saw so that. I, I don't know if she came with Pia, mm. but um, Pia's cool. Yes. What's up, Pia? Shout out. Um. So, Matt, after that, did you go to Samantha and Mike's panel? I did, yes. Samantha, no relation, okay. Wallace. Um, <laughs> I, I, also on masculinity, right? Masculinity. Uh, yes. Um, I think one of her sort of jumping off points, if I'm remembering correctly, was the. I, a lot of people say that uh, in one's first read of Infinite Jest, the the impulse is often to identify with Hal and then later on people wind up identifying with Gately. Mm. And I've said that. And, you have said that. And, and she was sort of going towards, well, um, what if we think maybe less about Hal or Don Gately as the center of the novel, but Avril or Joel. Right. And, mm. and she, the way she was getting at this was the, uh, the suggestion that, um, I'm, Looking at my notes, she used the phrase human sameness. And I let's see, I am I am not certain if that is Samantha's language or if that is quoting Wallace. But uh that being sort of one definition of empathy, this sort of recognition of the idea that that people are basically the same and we share experiences, she was sort of getting at like if the locus of identification stays Hal or Don Gately then, uh, well, then that interhuman sameness doesn't totally play out because all of those uh, points of identification are male. And right. so sort of proposing um, a kind of alternative center for the novel that uh, sort of redefines empathy uh, or readerly empathy in a really interesting way. Um, hmm. Um, that's super interesting, and I feel like uh, it's something we need to talk about more. Um, and that some of that came up in our diversity panel, right. and I think um, Samantha was there, and we talked uh, kind of about this concept, probably not in the kind of academic aesthetic conversation that she was having there, but uh, I think that that's... You know, because what what occurs to me when you're saying that is like, well, are we expecting too much of Wallace? You know, like in this book, is he supposed to re- is it is it really his goal to relate to all of humanity and like, you know, do all the other stuff that he's doing? Are we putting too much demands on on the book on him? Is the book a failure, as Claire Hayes Brady argues? You know, do other aspects of the novel make it a failure? I think that's a really interesting conversation. Mm. I guess that wasn't a question for you, Matt. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. That's okay. Um, um, so Mike Miley's paper was on David Lynch. Mm. 
Yeah. Um, I, I really, really liked this one a lot as well. Um, yeah, it was fun. Basically, he was suggesting um, that uh, Lynch is sort of the model for Wallace, maybe more than anyone else, for how to be a commercial artist. Um, he sort of started off by saying, by kind of poking fun at, like, do we need another influence study? We have talked about pension. We have talked about Delillo, <laughs> all of this. Yeah. Um, and he was making the case, well, the difference here is Lynch has more than one kind of language to work from, mm -hmm. uh, given all that he can do with the visual, given all that he can do with sound, um, that, that a writer can't. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, he kind of traced some similarities in the career, how they, they have some early success, uh, then sort of have a big, splashy weird entry into the mainstream uh with infinite jest or with blue velvet and then how sort of later work just keeps getting kind of more and more idiosyncratic while still kind of staying on people's radar um and uh made a really good case that uh that that lynch is someone that you could look at as a model for how to be sort of weird and idiosyncratic but also weirdly mainstream and also sort of staying in the marketplace even on his own terms. I know we've heard a lot of the, a lot of references to the, um, the, the interaction Wallace had with DeLillo about, you know, uh, is it okay to do a TV interview? So forth, wanting to figure out like to what extent uh, being in the marketplace was something he felt comfortable with. And, and a lot of what Mike was suggesting is it's not just that Lynch is similarly experimental, but it's that he finds a way to walk that tightrope. And and that connection, I, I thought, was really cool. Yeah, it was good. And Yeah, Mike uh, sent us the paper. I really like the opening, too. He <laughs> yeah, kind of David. <laughs> sets it up as, like, David, you know, gets an MFA and has this initial success and then reveals that it's David Lynch and not... David Wallace. Yeah, yeah. Good, really good media slideshow to go along with it too. It's quite, yeah. quite funny and and uh, well timed. Once he got it working. Um, I'm realizing we're not even through Thursday yet. Like, <laughs> there's no way we're going to be able to talk about all of these panels that I took notes on. Um, <laughs> any anything else you want to say after that? Did you see Tom Winchester's panel? Or I guess Tom's got moved, right? Tom had one. I think so. Yeah, I I was not able to see Tom, sadly. So a lot of the um, stuff because I have my notes and then the program, but like I realize now going by the program um, isn't a hundred percent of the reality because a lot of things got moved to the last minute. Um, but I will take a brief side thing to say that we had an amazing time on Thursday night at karaoke <laughs> conference MVP. <laughs> uh, that was one of the best times of the whole thing. Um, there was a, there was a little group of us who sought out a, a pretty authentic karaoke experience in um, Bloomington, normal Illinois at a place called pheasant lanes, which is quite a sight to behold a bowling alley that also has karaoke and mini yeah. and mini golf and beach volleyball 
<laughs> yeah. And a mini yeah, casino. There's gambling in there, too. Uh, Outdoor. Outdoor. <laughs> that's dope. <laughs> so that's part of what you're getting with the conference is the um, the ability to switch from talking about, like, the aesthetics of representation to immediately going into karaoke, which is pretty amazing. Indeed. Yep. I, I cried a little bit that I missed that especially. So that, I mean, that's basically when I showed up was at dinner, uh, dinner the next night. Uh, so I missed the whole thing until the extracurriculars and my ideas about the panels don't really begin until the next morning, which I have to say the whole next day, which was Friday at the conference was a little bit colored by me and Matt can vouch for this a little bit is like the suicide of Anthony Bourdain. Right. And that was like very, very shocking thing to wake up to for me. And, you know, being at a conference about, uh, Dave Foster Wallace who committed suicide himself. I was very, you know, aware of that the whole time. And I sort of, um, you know, not many people I felt like at the conference had the same reaction that I did, which was also even more bizarre because I felt like in my day-to-day life, you know, 2008, not many people had the same reaction that I did, but those who did reached out to me. Mm. Um, so that, that sort of informed my morning. Um, and the, the, pretty much the rest of the day for me. Yeah. I went I did I did go to a panel with um a guy named Max Chapnik and Dominic Steinhilber and Dominic from Germany was there. And his paper was super interesting about the idea of the Doppler effect and parallax Ooh. and comparing it to like Ulysses and basically saying like Wallace had um misattributed parallax to the Doppler effect and kind of illustrated this through like Euclidean and non-Euclidean geometry <laughs> as it relates to parallel lines. Okay. That's wild. Super interesting. Hmm. And he had, he had probably the best um, PowerPoint of anyone that I saw Agreed. because it was animated. Um, this would have, were you at this panel, Matt? I, I was, this would have been a really difficult paper to take in without his visuals. And they, uh, they, they, they helped so much, um, particularly with that idea that with, with just the, the question of what is he doing here using um, a term that refers to sound to describe things visually and using a term that refers to the visual to describe sounds. Um, it was, it was, yeah, it was, it was a fun paper about Euclidean geometry. <laughs> Yes, and um, the other paper, Max, he was also talking about a lot of the sort of advanced and abstract math and infinite jest, which, you know, is not my strong suit, and I have trouble following. Um, And, you know, I feel like at this point, I really need to apologize to everyone who we have not named yet that I missed their panels and like, that's one bad thing about this conference is that you have to decide, like you go to this panel, that means you're missing two other mm-hmm. panels, you know? So like I'd missed, uh, Jeffrey Tucker, George Vance, Christopher white. I missed Pia's panel. Um, 
on and on and on all of these people who I'm going to name like I missed their stuff Ryan Kerr Catherine Metcalf I just noticed Matt I didn't I didn't mention the names earlier on the the Lethem and the Kerouac paper the Lethem paper was David Hansen the uh, Kerouac paper was Justin Sharon shouts out shout shout outs shout outs shouts out <laughs> I like shouts either way, shout outs either way to both and they were both ISU, is that right? They were ISU um, people? Justin is. I'm, I don't believe... Yeah. Uh, actually, no, they both are. That's true. Yeah, okay. Well, that that was like the ISU panel. Um, it's really too bad that I missed that one. Um, but I would say that, uh, you know, we did get to talk to a couple of these people in the hallway, and I, would, I do want to get to some of the hallway conversations in a minute. And... Um, Shout out to Dominic and um, Max Chapman, really for Chapnick for putting on a pretty incredible, I thought super interesting panel about if you're into like non-Euclidean, you know, <laughs> parallel lines. Um, Was there a panel on Byzantine erotica as well? It did get mentioned several times. In fact, yeah, yeah. Uh, in, f- in fact, I could tell you off the top of my head, Daniel Leonard for sure mentioned Byzantine erotica. Got a boy, Daniel. Um, the next one I have notes on was uh, Andrea and Grace's panel, and Matt's already kind of mentioned Grace's paper um, about Wallace studies and uh, what did you call it, post-critical analysis. And I, I took a ton of notes, but I thought it was super interesting. Um, and I, I, I thought Andrea's was also pretty interesting. Cool. Man, Grace is like OG, hey? She's come three times to this conference from Australia, three years in a row, I think. Is that right? Well, she's she's in Austin right now, actually. So. Oh, that's nevertheless. But well done, still, Grace. yes, OG, definitely. <laughs> and you know what, what Matt was saying at the beginning of the show about how you can kind of take a pulse of Wallace studies and, you know, the first couple years it was a lot about like the role of fandom and the past couple years have been a lot about the role of you know women like can you be a a a woman and read infinite jest and be a fan of it Mm. um and and more than that i mean i'm I'm, well and i i'm i'm collapsing a lot of arguments into (laughs) sort of shorthand here but but I thought, and maybe Matt can speak to this better than me, but I thought that Grace's paper actually um, combined some of these arguments into like a slightly new way forward, which was talking about, you know, can you even be a fan and a critic? And that, you know, we hope the answer is yes. And that if so, like as a woman, what does that look like? Um and, you know, I, I'm i going to have to go back to my notes here, but because, uh, again, I was also feeling like the Anthony Bourdain thing in the middle of this. I think uh, some of, of Danielle's paper pointed to some of this as well, because she was talking about the the idea of the resisting reader and the assenting reader, readers who read suspiciously as opposed to readers who, who read sort of a bit more openly. Um, she was not she she did make some reference to uh to questions of gender but she was sort of framing it actually through um in part 
uh, in part Jonathan Franzen and the whole idea of the contract of big books being contract novels or status novels and that status novels sometimes get resistant readers who are just barreling through something that is not enjoyable mm-hmm. necessarily. Um, <laughs> that well, may- and I should say Grace didn't frame it in terms of gender either. I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm sort of doing that, doing that extraneously for no reason, maybe, but um, I, f- you know, Grace sort of framed it in terms of like, uh, of the personal, and, well, yeah, personal and post critical. What you were saying is like um, some of that had to do with uh, the way you know she made a pretty good argument that like okay maybe Wallace doesn't do you know voices of other people of color and women very well, but he does mental health really well, and that relates yeah. to people what other kind of person you are. Um, and so maybe you're a woman, maybe you're not, but like if he's relating to you on this level. And she quoted a lot of stuff from the Meredith Rand chapter yes. in um, okay. The Pale King. And it made me go back and read some of that in the past week. And I was like, damn, this is some of Wallace's best work. Mm, that's good. And if you haven't gone back and read the Meredith Rand stuff, I, I strongly you know, encourage it. But um, I thought it was an interesting – she made a lot of interesting points about kind of being – an authority on a work and being distant from it. And like, do you really have to be distant from it? She also quoted like Ann Chekovich and uh, as you said, Rita Felsky, who've done a lot of work in this area. And, and Andrea's paper, she quoted a guy saying like, uh, I think it was a student who said, I hate that. I love him so much. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She mentioned and, that when she was on a couple episodes ago, I think. Yeah, and I—I I mean, I've—I've—that's stuck with me um, mm-hmm. because I think that's true for a lot of readers, um, and you know, it wasn't necessarily my reaction initially, but she made some interesting comparisons with um, uh, teaching forever overhead and how it relates to students. And uh, we also talked about you know what other authors were you know, sort of generating this kind of like personal reading. Mm-hmm. And some of the names that came up were like Sylvia Plath. And uh, I think even Mike Miley brought up like when you're talking about author as character, like Hunter S. Thompson or even some of the beats that we were talking about a minute ago. Do you remember any of this, Matt? You know? I do. I And I, I remember wondering aloud a little bit, I guess my reaction was, um, since Plath and uh, and and Hunter S. Thompson both went through these phases in sort of the public imagination, where their personas became really reduced to like two broad strokes. Um, maybe I I wondered if maybe we are in that moment with Wallace right now. Mm-hmm. And and you know Plath, uh, people read her with way more depth now. Uh, I sense than when she was sort of uh, viewed a little more reductively and stereotypically, um, maybe a generation or so ago, is my understanding. Um, maybe the same thing with with Thompson, and so. It, that was my sort of, and I, I don't have a great answer, a, a, a perfect, well thought out answer to that yet. But that was kind of wondering aloud where I was there. I, I like those comparisons um, to to Thompson, to Plath. Um, 
And, and oh, well, you and I talked about too how how they're anthologized, right? Right, and, right. And and the way that Sylvia Plath uh, and maybe the beats to some extent are anthologized really influences the way that they're read. Yeah, you know that uh, undergraduate students encounter them for the first time, and you know I wonder what that is like to watch in real time as someone gets sort of added to the canon. Mm. I mean, and, and what is, so Wallace is in the new Norton anthology. Can you remind me of that? There is a cluster of creative nonfiction uh, in the uh, post-1945 volume of this most recent Norton. And it includes a little bit of Joan Didion's Year of uh, Magical Thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, it includes, I want to say some Edward Abbey. Uh, I want to say some Hunter S. Thompson. Um and hmm. it includes an excerpt of Consider the Lobster. Hmm. Hmm. Which, which excerpt? And, you know? um, I'm, it is... Consider the Lobster, right? Is but it, not the whole thing, uh, just part of it? it? It includes an excerpt of the essay, Consider the Lobster. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And can we say who the editor of the volume is? Uh, is, is my understanding is uh, Amy Hungerford. <laughs> that's just Cra- crazy world you. <laughs> crazy world um uh and and for those who don't know listening out there like amy hungerford wrote a famous essay about basically why you shouldn't read infinite jest or or as, David as Foster Wallace in general maybe? Jest, right? some people did right, not like but, that very much well and it's sort of like you know, did she really pick this? I don't know. It's an it's an interesting development in the sort of ongoing canonical conversation. Sure, and and loads of. I mean, I don't have deep deep knowledge of this, but I have some anecdotal knowledge of this. That like so many different interests, different um, you know rights issues, all kinds of stuff comes up in anthology making. So uh, yeah, I believe that. Um, sorry, I went off on this tangent again. I feel like I'm not going to do justice to the whole conference at this point. Um, I missed Danielle's panel next because I was part of a, um, diversity panel and actually, um, set, set that out and just sat in the audience. And I asked Wendy Liu to take my place on the diversity panel thought we had a good discussion in there cool. but it meant that i missed danielle's paper about uh her creative piece um and this if you've never been to this conference there's like a fair amount of creative writing presentations which is always interesting um i also missed Corey hudson and martin brick uh two really great scholars um Matt, did you did you attend that panel at all? I, I was not able to. I was I was there with you at the uh, at the diversity panel. Diversity. Um, are we are we gonna anything else you want to say about that? I mean, I I actually don't have great notes from that. Um, go <laughs> you ahead. did all the talking, so therefore you don't have notes. Is that, is that what you're saying? Hey, hey, <laughs> it's America, baby. One thing that I appreciated is. Uh, there was discussion of sort of different um, axes, I guess, of uh, breadth of voices. 
Um, there was, as we might expect, uh, a, a great deal of discussion of gender, but there were also people thinking about uh, thinking about class, thinking about uh, heteronormativity. Um, there, it, it was a, a panel that was certainly informed by a lot of the uh, the Me Too inspired discussions that are currently happening about Wallace, uh, but it was not limited to that at all. And and it was really, really sort of freewheeling discussion. It was nice. Hmm. Yeah, no, that's that's true. And there was a lot of talk about like uh, stereotypes and and sort of, you know, how do we fight against those in some ways? Um, and, you know, there's there was some talk of like, OK, you can have diversity on your table of contents, but then what else? And you know, one thing, this kind of leads into the next discussion, which is about the keynote from Claire Hayes Brady, which was like, the consensus felt like it was better to critically engage this discussion rather than to avoid it and disengage it. And I think there is sure. some criticism of, of Wallace studies in general or Wallace society about like, oh, well, they don't really, you know, there's not an immediate response to this thing. And I would say, you know, to that, it takes some time, but or it takes some time to flesh out like what the, you know, how is it best to engage rather than disengage. But the, everyone seemed to sort of agree that it was better to sort of, like I say, critically engage mm -hmm. rather than not engage with these subjects. Um, yeah. And there was some just like, you know, it wasn't all perfect. Like there was some like talk of like. You know, you know, everyone was an asshole in the 90s. Like, if you held, <laughs> held up, like, and then there, you know, they are, our standards... They're still all assholes, if you haven't noticed, as well. Well, you know, 20-plus years ago, it's, like, it's pretty easy to find stuff that doesn't fit our standards today. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's not necessarily an excuse, but, like... No. You know, what, what, can, what can we do? And I felt like there was a lot of stuff that I want to follow up from that panel. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm curious to know from your guys' perspective, what uh, what kind of like splash or um, kind of how did the vibe shift a bit maybe at this conference from some of the recent Mary Carr stuff? We're talking about the Me Too movement. Um, some of the stuff she put on Twitter, you know, last month or a couple months ago. Uh, was that was that kind of palpable? Is that something people were talking about in in discussions in the hallway? What was your read? I heard two separate references to that guardian piece from a couple of weeks ago that sort of suggested that um basically uh the a male-centered literary canon has helped create the alt-right mm. um that's pretty it, dark uh, it, it, and it is I, I'm I'm not crazy about that Guardian piece. Um, I think it it is assuming that. Let, let me think how to put this. Um, I mean, this is the this is the piece that's sort of saying like literature is slightly to blame for a lot of our like male centric worldview. Yeah, is that is that right? Yeah, because um, Samantha's paper engaged this and. Um, Claire made brief reference to it, and um, I, I think uh, I, I know definitely that was a was an article that seemed to be uh, in a lot of people's recent reading. Mm -hmm. um, 
Claire made some reference to did, did she not Matt to the yes. uh, yeah no right off the bat yeah yeah to the to the Mary Carr uh, comments as well mm-hmm. oh she did she did like right at the beginning of her speech and um, you know I would say my experience of this is a little bit influenced also by a panel that um, Mike Miley and I were on with Ryan Lackey and Alex Moran at the American Literature Association at the end of May mm-hmm. of this year in San Francisco. And we um, sponsored this panel, the David Foster Wallace Society did, to talk about this issue of uh, you know great male narcissists and Updike. And then Mary Carr posted this, this um, you know, series of tweets talking about in the in really in response to the Juno Diaz yeah. you know scandal um, and so we did a lot of engaging with that there at the American Literature Association and you know my sort of impression was that there were a couple of things that you know Claire agreed with at our um, keynote at you know last week's conference which is that it's better to critically engage and say okay yes if this was true then what and then, you know, how do we go forward from this? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, one thing I would say outside of all of those things, personally, if you look at those those couple of tweets, I think that, that um, there's some muddying of the waters and confusing a couple of different issues in here that makes it hard to talk about. And one is that she... Mary Carr says something about the biography that, uh, you know, DT Max only listened to or didn't listen to it and didn't include it, which, right. you know, I think is factually incorrect and that he did include that in the biography. And like the three or four things that she mentions in specific incidents are in the biography. And a lot of the articles, like there was an article in the Atlantic that said, you know, this is not new information per se, but it's new in a different context. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I think that that's, that's important to say is that, well, you know, we've had this out there for a while. Why wasn't it part of the discussion, you know, a year ago or six years ago when the book came out? Right. So, I mean, that, that's part of it. The, I mean, the other thing is that she said something about, well, you know, Juno Diaz, blah, 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 and the, but Wallace was white. Mm. and bringing like whiteness studies and into this and like an accusation that because he's white and therefore declared like a genius maybe we're letting him a pass and like i feel like it's really hard to read into what she was trying to get at with with that statement Mm. and i didn't hear a lot of engagement at either panel with that topic in this same context so i think it's a super complex thing that is going to affect wallace studies for a long time Mm -hmm. um but I also, you know, and I don't think we should like try to not like talk about it or try oh, to defend yeah. Wallace's actions. Yeah. Um, but I also think like, you know, him being white and Juno Diaz not being white. I don't know how much that plays into it. I thought that was kind of wild that that was the context that she brought it up in. Mm. Anywho. <laughs> uh, uh, my notes from there go straight into the um, the keynote. Matt, do you want to talk about any more on the keynote? I don't know that I have anything else on it. Yeah. I mean, she did a pretty interesting um, turn of events about um, 
toxic masculinity. Yes. And she even talked about the death of Lucien Antitoy. Mm. I'm probably saying that wrong about his sort of anti-masculine death, the way that he was sort of impaled impaled on on the broomsticks. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, my other notes are all about how cold the room was. And <laughs> I was feeling very, very sad about uh, Anthony Bourdain. Yeah. And um, no, everyone sort of thought it was a great keynote and Claire did a great job. Um, she was, uh, you know, pre-recorded the, the keynote from Dublin, mm-hmm. which was an interesting experience because she also called in. So there was like two Claire's on the board. <laughs> um, That's very Lynchian, I think. Going back to Mike's paper. You know, and it's like I, in Lost I, talk, Highway, I remember you know, the phone call with the guys there and, and somewhere else at the same time. Exactly. <laughs> and I, I remember, I, do you remember this, Matt, is that I remember if we had Jeff Seavers on here, he would probably speak to this more, that he kind of asked about um, Nabokov. And he brought this back to sort of saying like, well, you know, how was Nabokov received in, you know, the early sixties when he's writing about like, you know, basically a pedophile in Humbert Humbert, mm. um, you know, and, and what was that sort of, you know, reaction in terms of the author? I thought that was an interesting question. Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to think what was next. Do you recall uh, uh, where we went after I, that? Matt? I think not long after that, we had uh, the visit from Sean Pratt, right. Uh, talking right, about the, right. the, uh, the audiobook of infinite jest. That's right. Sean Pratt showed up and he's also, you know, a former guest on the show. Mm-hmm. And he did a great talk about, um, you know, how the audiobook came to be and sort of backstory to it. And then he also did a, uh, a workshop, a workshop right? talking about how, uh, you know, audiobooks are produced. And he had his like script up, an excerpt of it, and showed how he marks it up and then sort of read from the, the excerpt. Um, and that, that was super great to have him there and be a part of, um, the conference. Yeah, that's fun. Did he, did he do the, um, Ken Erdity section wa- waiting for the woman who said she'd come? That's right. right. Cause that's on correct. the episode, he talks about how he frequently uses that passage to, um, to demonstrate expert pacing in narrative. That's correct. Mm-hmm. Yep. Cool. That's fun that he did that then. Yep. And then we had a, a society meeting, which I'll skip over and say we also had a, a memorial thing for Charlie Harris right. that same, I think it was that same night. Yes. Um, which was really great. And Bob, McMa- Bob McLaughlin read uh, a great remembrance of Charlie. Oh, that's sweet. And, and anything else on that? Day, Matt. It was. Uh, I. I would just mention. I enjoyed Bob's remembrance so much because it was not about Charlie Harris, pillar of study of of contemporary fiction. It was. It was very much just about his friend, his friend. and and his and his colleague. Like there were. He was referring to them to him certainly as as a colleague at ISU, but. Uh, it was it was really really well done. Mm. I would expect nothing, no, I, nothing less from him. Yeah, yeah. It was one of the high points of the the conference. I felt like 
Um, actually, I think I'm looking back at my notes. And I think maybe did Alex Moran and Tom Moore's paper get moved to that day? Um, got moved around. I don't Anyways, recall. I, I definitely saw and enjoyed both of those. <laughs> I think that that was on that got moved to Friday and um, uh, Tom Moore gave a great thing about uh, Donald Bartomey's the balloon. Oh, right. Yeah. And, saw that. and, and Alex Moran talked about um, opiates and like the opioid epidemic, oh. which was super fascinating. Huh. Alex is um, in the context of what? I'll tell you. Well, <laughs> <laughs> yes, Alex's I was not paper, there. Please do. Alex's paper would be another candidate for me for for one of the my favorites that I heard uh, in at the whole conference. I mean, um, Dave, it was it was about sort of the idea of a lineage of fiction about opiates. Mm -hmm. um, so taking Infinite Jest, but going all the way back to to things like De Quincey, things like uh, Confessions of, a, of an Opium Eater, and then going through mid-century stuff like like Man with the Golden Arm. Um, mm. But he was also kind of... I don't know if he meant... That was, did he mention Oscar Wilde, Matt? Dorian Gray or anything? I don't know. The, that's Nelson Algren, right? Man, Man with, with the Golden, Golden Arm, Arm, Nelson Algren, yeah. Um, yeah, I just, but, I just mean, was uh, Dorian Gray part of that conversation? I, I don't know. You know, I, one one interesting thing he did say was that OxyContin was approved the year Infinite Jest was published. Oh, I thought that was interesting. Wow. And so there, yeah, there was some. He did some really interesting linking it up to historically what has been approved for medical use, what is available over the counter, what is illegal at mm -hmm. different points in this lineage. Um, really, really interesting stuff. Cool. Well, well, in his paper, too, he had it really well structured, and he said at first he was going to structure his paper like an opium plant. I thought that was interesting. <laughs> um, but he, the first part of it, I wrote this down, was he was talking about chronic pain, and then he was really meaning like psychic pain. Mm. Um, but chronic pain being like something that must be treated, and it is treated in infinite jest with, um, you know, drugs. Mm -hmm. And then the gradual criminalization of the addict which is super interesting part mm -hmm. of Infinite Jest, and then the commercialization of opiates. And all of this was sort of built on the argument that, you know, we should just look at the surface of the text and that on the, at a very surface level, there's a lot going on about opiates and pain and addiction. And, you know, how do we talk about that in terms of a historical novel? I thought I, I'd never heard anything like it. So like well, Matt, I thought it was that's cool. one of the most interesting. And that the, the thing he was citing, the, uh, the, the concept of surface reading his, uh, there are a couple of sort of, uh, kind of widely read articles on it now that have become kind of foundational to the whole post-critical thing. So, yeah. I mean, I would put Alex's paper in that category too. Yeah, and, and not to take anything away from Tom's paper, who was also there and just yeah. super interesting. We brought in stuff about, you know, the balloon, which I've never heard anyone talk about. Wallace said that that is what made him mm -hmm. become a writer. That's right, yeah. And then talked about, um, you know, metafiction and sort of how Bartleme is neglected. And, uh, you know, are these writers metafictionally like apolitical or the, are they political? Mm -hmm. Saying something about consumer culture. And he talked about, the collage and it was it was a really great paper as well so 
Cool. Agreed. Was Alex as well-dressed as usual in previous years? Always a tie. Yes. Always, I'm just going to say yes. I don't even last. remember, but I'm going to say yes. <laughs> <laughs> I show up in t-shirts last year and academic shorts, and Alex Moran is always like practically in a suit. Well, I know Tom Moore was in a tie. I remember yeah, Tom was Tom in a tie. Tom, too. But... Sharp guy. Uh-oh. Um, and Alex and I uh, hung out a lot in San Francisco for ALA. Oh so, yeah, yeah, awesome. Um, that guy's got like yeah, the most Mike Mike Pamulus vibe of anyone in the Wallace community, I think. But by virtue <laughs> of the way that he the way that he talks in such a like quiet, lilting British accent, but you know that he's just kind of like looking around from side to side <laughs> before he says something because it's usually very biting, biting and witty. Oh god. Ditto. Um, yeah. <laughs> I feel like we're not, we're never going to make it all the way through these like discussions that I want to get through. And like, um, I went to a panel with Vernon Sisney talking about the great Ohio desert mm-hmm. and Ahmed Tayebi talking about maps. Mm-hmm. That was phenomenal. Um, I went to Carly's panel about lying, Carly Yinks mm-hmm. about lying and, um, from Harvard, right? Yep. From Harvard. It was super interesting talking about this New Yorker article from Salman Rushdie um, and like, is fiction lying? I thought that was pretty great. I'm Uh, reading a Salman Rushdie uh, novel right now, Midnight's Children, almost close to finishing. It's pretty long. I mean, it won like, didn't that win the Booker Prize in like 1981 or something like that? Yeah, that sounds right. Ish. Something like that. Um, I mean, it's it's all right for me, man. It's just, it doesn't ring my cherries the way it used to. But um, <laughs> this guy Jameson, did you see this panel he did about uh, tennis? It was all about tennis, man. I did. Um, that- I think y'all both have more tennis knowledge than I do, and so I I re- I appreciated this one because it was getting at how um, some of the distinctions about different uh, sort of styles of play that uh, in in tennis, mm-hmm. um, and how he talks about them in the nonfiction, can yeah. actually shed some light on on if memory serves how we perhaps ought to read certain characters in in Infinite Jest mm, based on their is, play styles. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I mean, and and that that for me is just I mean. That is a kind. That is a realm of information that <laughs> that I need someone to explain to me because <laughs> I I have no doubt that it is all there on the page, but I'm not attuned to it. Mm. And so, just hearing, I'm not attuned to it naturally until someone like Jameson comes along and 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 draws my attention to it. So, like that, I mean, that's that's sort of what a great conference paper is for. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, cool. Well, and you're, you're vastly overestimating my own tennis knowledge, um, <laughs> which, you know, can be inscribed on the rim of a shot glass with a crayon, dull crayon. Uh, but he did bring up some interesting stuff about like the power baseline game mm-hmm. as it relates to, <laughs> again, certain characters in infinite jest. And I was like, I was sort of blown away by that because I had not given it much serious thought. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think Jameson is also on your side of the um, concavity up there in Canada. Oh, yeah. Yep. Cool. Um, um, and then there, I also, I think Carly was on the panel with um, 
Daniel Leonard talking about Avril. Mm-hmm. And this this is the panel for like people who love talking about Infinite Jest. Yeah, <laughs> and, and like this this panel was freaking awesome. And like we got to get Daniel to just sort of re- recreate the whole thing because he pulled out these connections that basically argued that Luria P mm-hmm. is Av- is Avril. You know, or let me back that up. That like Luria, <laughs> like Luria the Swiss, P, like the Swiss hand Swiss model. Hand model the Swiss hand model yeah. is Loria, yeah. is Avril, mm-hmm. and that there's this sort of tripling of a character. You know, we talk a lot about double binds and doubling mm-hmm. of characters, but to talk about tripling of characters. Um, Oren has like a know, tryst with her, right? With Loria yes. B? Yeah. Okay, yeah. Yes. So the whole Oedipal argument thing that with Oren that comes up a lot, that would wildly confirm that. <laughs> Yep. Yes, and I thought an interesting point. I think it was Vernon who actually made this point to say that, you know, we call her the moms, mm-hmm. like the the plural mm-hmm. moms, because she has more than one personality. Mm. I thought that was interesting. Um, and like, if you rearrange the letters of like Luria, you can sort of get Avril if you change the U to a V. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, I thought that was really it was little, really little good an- anagram action on the panel. Yeah, yeah. yeah we de- we actually had uh, a sort of sub theme in the conference of anagrams. Wouldn't you oh, say? We that? did. We oh, did. Pray tell. <laughs> okay. Oh, um, shit. This okay, is scoops. Okay, these okay. are the scoops I came for. <laughs> these are these are the scoops this that you gossip, came for, Dave. Yeah. Okay, so silly thing. I I think. <laughs> Silly thing. I think it's good to have an alter ego. Ideally, at all times. Yes. Yes. Ideally, your alter ego should be an anagram of your real name. Okay. So, so, uh, so I have. um, If you anagram Matthew Luter, it anagrams really easily to Walter Hummett. And (laughs) and and so there you go. There's there's mine. Um, Okay. Tell us more about this alter ego. (laughs) This came up at actually at at karaoke and uh because some people some people were putting up you know uh uh uh, stage names you know when they're signing the list and so forth what did walter hummett sing at at karaoke what's his vibe musically oh uh well i think this all this a this conversation happened after i had signed the (laughs) list so so walter didn't sing anything walter missed out okay yeah, Matt. Matt sang. Uh, Matt Luter sang uh, "Surrender" by Cheap Trek. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so um, and so amazing. I mentioned this, and and uh, the alter ego anagram thing. People start getting you know start getting a napkin and like scrawling out their name and, and moving <laughs> the letters around, and yeah. and and then and I mentioned this to one side of the table, and then and then I mentioned this to Matt Booker's side of the table. <laughs> And and I'm like Matt, it, it, we should all have alter egos, and ideally your alter ego is an anagram of your name. And without missing a beat, Matt says, <laughs> "I have one. I have one. <laughs> Go for it. It's Brett Chatham. Brett Chatham. Brett Chatham. Brett Chatham. <laughs> I was like, I've done this. I'm I'm in. Locked I was like, I've got one. Nice. Just no hesitation. I was like, oh, you want an anagram of my name, alter ego, Brett Chatham. Boom." <laughs> And so I, I was one of those ones who immediately, like, we got to get everyone to have one of these anagrams. I'm going to enter uh, my name into an anagram uh, maker online right now, and I'll get back to you guys uh, in a second. 
Okay. You should definitely come up with one. We came up with some really good <laughs> ones for um, Danielle and for Andrea. Um, but yeah, anagram was a sort of sub theme of the conference, I would say. And if you don't have an anagram for your name, make one and send it into us. I uh, would love to post, just like tweet out a long list of everyone's like anagram names. <laughs> um, Walter Hummett. Advil Dare. Like, That's mine. Advil, Advil Dare. Dare. Pretty, I've never met anyone named Advil. Pretty good, though. huh? There's actually like hundreds of entries that came out when I entered mine. I don't know. I'm gonna, I mean, you that's... guys just put me down a really nice rabbit hole. Thank you for that. All right. That's interesting. Um, <laughs> so Daniel Leonard, I got to go back to his paper for one more thing because I think last year he presented on John Berryman. Maybe I'm mistaken about this, but I know that his panel was moderated by Jeff Seavers and Jeff Seavers mentioned like, Oh, Daniel's an expert on the, the, uh, the dream songs with John Berryman, who's also a suicide. And if you haven't read his poems are super interesting. Um, and he talked about the sort of infinite just connections to the dream songs, which mm -hmm. I've sort of gone back to now. And I pulled that book off my shelf and, you know, in the dream songs, the main character is named Henry. And he's like, digging up his father's grave and there's really that was a great panel like if you're looking for infinite just connections for sure cool um what what did you go to next matt let's go like let's do like one or two quick things and then um, maybe we should wrap it up here i i would also mention another favorite for me was um peter christensen speaking about everything and more um, I have to, I have to admit, I have not read everything and more. I know I am not alone <laughs> You're because, not, no. because, and I know this because the first thing that Peter did in his, his presentation was just say, show of hands, mm -hmm. <laughs> who has read everything and more. And it was I, very few people in the room. Yeah. I think that happened maybe last year and there was like three people in the room or something like that. But uh, he, he made a really interesting case that um, perhaps we shouldn't be scared off by the math because there's a lot oh, in yeah, it. Oh, yeah, I agree. There's a, there's a lot in it that would be familiar to any Wallace reader. There are, mm -hmm. I mean, from, from the, the surface level of their footnotes and then footnotes to footnotes, but then also just to sort of some of the narrative stuff he does with telling the story of some of these mathematicians mm -hmm. and how they involve sort of father-son conflict, how they involve um, <laughs> these other sort of like narrative tropes that do show up elsewhere in, in Wallace's own own fiction. And so I'm a, I, I've, I've been slightly scared off by the math. I've also been... Um, I've also not taken it on because, and, and maybe y'all have had this or a similar experience with this. It feels to me like there is something very sad in reading the last thing you haven't read by a writer. Oh yeah. That's and, true. I know a lot of people who have not read the pale King for that reason. Well, yeah, I, I, I understand. I put off for the longest time, uh, Delillo's Ratner's star. Mm -hmm. because I wanted there to be always one more for me. Um, <laughs> yeah. now, now, now that I think about it, Ratner's Star is a book that is very much about math, so we're learning something else about what scares me off. <laughs> uh, 
I will say about everything and more, you should be afraid of the math elements of the book. I have a very little math background and like after page, you know, 100 after he finishes giving like the history of the concept of infinity in 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 mathematics, I get pretty I got like almost virtually lost for the whole rest of the book. However, I agree with what you were just saying about the the person's comments that there's still so many Wallacean elements to even the really heavy math stuff that is very enjoyable to a Wallace fan. So if I were to take it on, Dave, will uh, will we will we count this as an entry in Summer of Mega Novels, even though it is neither mega nor novel? <laughs> um, that I on a on a level of challenge, I think it's there. It's a challenging book. Okay. For sure. All right. This is this is my thing now. Big books. Summer is for big books. Summer is for big books. <laughs> I'll read the mystery doc dot doc uh, this summer then. We're gonna honestly. Do that. I'm still reading Novel Explosives by Jim Gower, yeah, which you should all read. Yeah, it's freaking awesome. It's on my list. It's amazing. Oh, good. It's amazing. Dave, um, I I love the uh, see. This is perfect because last year we had a very lopsided agreement. <laughs> we, our bet was very lop. Yeah, you. I got a really good deal out of that. Yeah. So if you, you should you you keep up with uh with the uh the mystery dot doc and and I'll take on everything and more. Yeah, that would be that would be an, a fair equivalent trade to last year to to, okay. to make things even. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> I mean that's that's kind of sad for me. I'm not sure that there's any Wallace that I haven't read. Yeah. Um. And like and like not in a braggy way, just because I've like I've been reading the guy for 20 years and sure. like I've. He's been dead for almost 10 years, and I mean, I'm pretty sure, even though, like, Everything and More is definitely the hardest one to read, Wallace is trying to make it accessible. Mm -hmm. Totally. Um, and, and I wish that I had seen Peter's paper about this so that I could, you know, go back to it. I, that's probably the book that I'm least likely to, to pick up again. For me, it's FaceTime yeah. and language, but that would be second. Oh, God. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that that barely even counts. You know? <laughs> yeah, I agree. I agree. <laughs> it's a pretty um, rough go. I mean, but but what was the the sort of argument that we should, like, count it as, a, you know, part of his nonfiction canon or repertoire? Or what, what, what was the argument, Matt? Largely, uh, let's see. I'm, I'm looking back at my notes. He says, okay, Peter said, DT Max suggests in the biography that the book is basically a, a dare. Um, <laughs> and and uh, kind of, Wallace like throwing down the gauntlet to other, to other writers saying like, could you pull something like this off? <laughs> um, but in uh, in career context, Peter was saying it's really about getting getting readers into his head too, um, mm. and and that I, I was I was convinced that uh, oh oh he also sort of speculated that um, when because uh, it was published on Norton right and they had in mind an idea for a sort of series of books where. Right. Notable writers would explain uh, difficult abstract concepts that are kind of in their wheelhouse. And um, Peter kind of speculated that Norton kind of wanted him to go a little more philosophical than mathematical, and that perhaps Wallace didn't go terribly philosophical because that might involve entering his father's discipline. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. 
and that's interesting. Yeah. Um, also mentioned that he was doing this, uh, that he started it while he was in Bloomington Normal, moved to Claremont with it in progress while he was also finalizing Oblivion and working on Pale King. So that it could almost be, Peter was saying, a little bit of an outlet from the 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 bleakness of a lot of Oblivion and and um, did it, that that was another really valuable piece of that paper I think is is putting it in career context since we do talk of it often as this kind of oddity. Mm-hmm. Cool. That sounds like a fun paper. It was. And I, I feel like we're running out of time now, but I, I have to say about one other panel. And again, I wish that I could have attended more and I did not. And so if I did not mention your name, I sincerely apologize. But the, the one other panel that I attended, which was phenomenal, was about teaching Wallace. And it was um, Vernon Sisney from Gettysburg College. And he had um, three undergrad students with him. It was uh, Vera, Maddie, and Daniel, and they each sort of presented their research, and all of their papers were amazing, and I was super, super impressed by all three of their papers, and I thought that was a really great way of, um, you know, broadening the discussion in the panels um, and in the conference by bringing them involved, you know, getting them involved. Awesome. Um, Matt, any anything else that I'm that you want to mention in terms of panels that we haven't mentioned? Um, I I think that about covers what I had had notes on. Um, okay, I had one other mention, which is I want to go back to Emilio and Emilio's panel about uh, copy editing Infinite Jest, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and Emilio had such great access to the drafts of infinite jest because he is a volunteer at the ransom center right, here right. in austin and emilio as part of his uh generous nature has donated a giveaway to a uh listener of the podcast and that is a pretty nice water bottle that is a it's like stainless steel what would you say yeah it looks looks you like that stainless dark, steel? dark red stainless steel and it's a water bottle that was given to volunteers at the Ransom Center that says, this is water on it, <laughs> which I thought was pretty clever. Um, and I think that the person who gives us the best anagram of their name oh, that's should win this water contest. bottle. I like that. So we've already said we need to hear more anagrams of your name. So if you have an alter ego identity of your name, send it in, tweet it, uh, email us, Instagram it, direct message, however you can get it to us. Here's um, here's what I'll say to that. The best way to submit would be when we post the Instagram slash Twitter announcement for this episode, write your anagram name in the comments of either on Twitter or Instagram. And that way we have them all in, in two places perfect so you have to submit twitter or instagram i should mention maybe this is a fun fact it goes back to uh the old uh the old nabokov thing right how vladimir nabokov had vivian dark bloom show up that's correct that's correct in the occasional uh piece of his work as uh his little anagrammed alter ego there we Uh, go vivian dark bloom oh you can do it on facebook too because we'll i'll put that there for this episode 
like four people will see it, but that's fine. Um, yeah, Vivian Darkbloom, that's going to be tough to beat. You know? um, uh, Danielle Ely, we had Leeds Liani was hers. Leeds Liani. And, uh, that Got a nice pretty, ring. It also sounds like a detective. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Leeds Liani. <laughs> um, going back to the, um, to the karaoke thing, uh, give us a rundown of who did what songs. What, what were the highlights? Oh, God. Matt, Matt Booker, what was your song? Oh, well, I did not sing, unfortunately. Oh. I did not get a chance to. I, if I had to do it over again, I should have just wrote my name on the list first thing. As um, Brett Chatham. Brett Chatham. Were you secret, um, secretly, inwardly relieved that you didn't? Or are you like an exhibitionist when you go to karaoke? Uh, I'm an extrovert, oh. so I'm <laughs> sincerely sad that I didn't. I, as Matt will tell you, I did get to sing back up on a Violet Femme song. Oh, okay. That, <laughs> that was good. great. That was that fun. That was great. Little um, known fact about me is I've never sung public karaoke in a venue like that. I've been to karaoke lots. I've just never sung. You should. I think so. Um, I think if I had to choose a song, it would be El Scorcho by Weezer. That would be my best bet uh, at a top performance. Nice. Yeah. That's pretty great. I mean, Mike Miley doing, I, I should say, I'm sorry, Chunky Brewster doing. Um, Chunky Brewster. <laughs> doing the talking. Uh, I think it's just his alter ego. All. He showed it's up. It's an alter ego. So. Oh, okay. He showed Chunky up at before anagrams ever entered the conversation. Doing he he did um, Wild Wild Life by Talking Heads, which was freaking amazing. Okay. Um, Good. Jeff Sievers. I mean, Jeff Sievers was also great. Uh, somebody really that great. I used to know. <sighs> which was amazing. We should do like a Spotify playlist of all of these, Dave. Oh, that's a fun idea. Uh, the uh, karaoke list. Danielle did a did a pretty stellar ironic. That was great. Oh, Lannis yes. Morissette. Yes. yes. That's, that's apropos for a Wallace conference. It was a crowd favorite, too. A crowd favorite, for sure. <laughs> Fantastic. But no, the conference was great. I um, I have one little offhand comment, which is the, um, the Vernon's panel, which I mentioned about Wallace in the classroom. Um, this guy, Daniel... I forget his last name, Shusit. I don't want to butcher it, but he said something about reading Infinite Jest, which, you know, he did in a class, and he showed like a screenshot of his um, Instagram post when he finished Infinite Jest, and he called it My Dear Justini. And just the, just the night before, I had made an offhand joke about um, firing up the cable teenies, and literally no one got this joke. And so I would say if there are any listeners out there who get this joke, like, please contact me (laughs) offline Um, because I just felt like it was serendipitous where he said, um, my dear Justini. And I said, fire up the cable teenies that I wrote that down. I was like, God dang it. I'm going to find my people. If anyone knows what that means. So can we talk Um, about this or you just have to know? No, it's if just you know, it's just a minor know. like offhand. Okay. Yeah, it's just a minor like offhand thing. I'm not um, I'm not in this club. I'm sorry to say. That's fine. I'm it's I mean it's it's an probably an American only thing, but um, uh, um I, I had a really great time at the conference, and it was really great to see everyone who came. Again, there were more panels than I could possibly attend. Um, I, anything else you have, Matt? That's like kind of 
overarching or, or the underarching? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, what were the con- what's the conference low light? What's the anti-conference MVP, Matt? Oh no, I can't. I can't go. Blow there, it up. But, um, um, I let's see. Okay, so I I had a train delayed coming back uh, from from Champaign, Illinois to to uh, to Jackson. It's better than a train crash like last year. That, that's true. That's true. On the way there. Uh, yeah. So so instead of getting on a train at ten thirty at night, I got on a train at one thirty in the morning. But oh. um, because there's about like twelve or fifteen people sitting there, you know, and there's nothing we can do about it. Like, you know, just uh, uh, well, well, I'll just cut to the chase. A betting pool developed as to <laughs> as to what time, what time the uh, thing was actually going to arrive. I I lost a dollar because I'm a big <laughs> <laughs> um, but Could you know, it, it and 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 show me the airport terminal where that kind of kind of thing happens when there's a delay. That kind of you know. camaraderie, yeah. yeah. Seinfeld that happened with Seinfeld. Kramer, you know. I mean the Amtrak, the Amtrak. It's it's good travel if you're not in a hurry. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's true. Um, and and your stories from that, like you're kind of underselling this. Like I feel like you should just tell us more about the story from this point. About what? The 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 Golden Girl type group that was there. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, they were they were they were running the uh they were running the the betting pool and the betting pool. Uh, <laughs> and and i and and i think they had uh they were going all the way to new orleans and they are gonna have more fun in new orleans than 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 we can than imagine. you had in illinois probably uh, and it's possible and and you know <laughs> we uh I, if 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 I if I saw correctly what was happening, um, they they had they were not wearing matching T-shirts, but they had got matching T-shirts for this trip made, mm-hmm. and a couple of them like decided that the ticket agent, like we were all friends at that point, right? <laughs> and so they uh, they asked him if he had a sharpie and if he would sign their matching trip to New Orleans T-shirts. Oh my god! <laughs> like, it, it was. I mean, this is what happens at the train station at midnight. <laughs> yes, it is. Oh my god, indeed. Um, I'm trying to think. So I have like a few other people. I want to give a shout out to um, Brian Cooper, who I met at lunch with his wife. Christy? Yeah, I'm really sorry uh, I didn't get to meet him. We've had some really fun yeah. in, uh, interaction online and emails. Friend of friend of the pod, <laughs> and uh, it was really great to to hang out with him at lunch. Um, I also met uh, Tess Brewer, who was there, and Tess and I talked a little bit about heresy, which is super interesting. Heresy, heresy, like religious heresy. Yes. Oh. Um, and tell me she, more. She, I love a well, good Mr. Paper. I, well, I missed her paper, so I can't really do it justice. Oh. But there were a lot of people who, you know, who had papers that I just could not make. Um, and I, you know, overall, I want to encourage everyone who has never attended the conference to try to like make it at some point in the future. I do want to give a shout out to Ryan Edel. Haven't said his name on the show yet, but like. Um, Ryan deserves a lot of credit for making the conference happen the past couple of years. Um, who else? Tom Winchester. I mentioned Tom. I missed his paper. G- 
good friend of mine, and uh, I love Tom. I'm sorry I couldn't make his paper. We're gonna um, we're gonna call it, this the apology episode. That's how I'm gonna yeah, title it. Well, episode I mean, that's 39, like the apology. Episode. As you know, I mean, you were hanging out there last year. Like you you miss like oh, yeah. two thirds of it by just going to one third of it. That's like true. you go to one third of it, and it's like you miss the other third. So like I spend two thirds of my time there being like, hey, sorry I missed your paper. But I am truly sorry I missed all these people's paper. Do you think that the um, this conference needs to go to to a format where it's it's um, one panel in each time slot and just just take way less papers? Or is this a better, more livable format? Uh, I mean, I like that. I, I'll, I'll tell you, I like that. Like, I've been to conferences that are both ways. Yeah. And I'm okay with, like, picking between two things, but p- picking between three is really hard. Double binds are one thing. Triple binds are... are Very uh, hard. Are, yeah. Um, but it was great to see everyone. Dennis and was I there. Talk to Dennis. Dennis Frank, always there. Dennis I love Frank. Dennis. Yeah, sorry, uh, I missed Great to year, hang Dennis. out with him. Yeah. Um, we got to get Dennis. Shout out to Dennis. Get Dennis at karaoke next year. Um, right. Prolixian, I got to give a shout out to her. She was there. Um, a lot of people were there. Like I say, I, I can't possibly do it full justice. But it was great to see you all. And I hope that, you know, we get people who come back next year so absolutely myself included <laughs> dave laird i missed you uh, rob short I missed you cory baldoff charlie harris i missed you cory baldoff missed you john mango a lot of people i missed john mango <laughs> the list goes on chris ayers yeah um, chris ayers is not there either um how, with that where can people find us dave we are at concavity show on twitter and instagram you can email us concavity show gmail.com uh we're on facebook at the great concavity any final thoughts matt luter before we uh just go to the break i think my final thoughts would just be that uh i would agree with everything matt said about if you have not uh made it to this conference before and you're thinking about it it is it is a really welcoming conference. It is a really um, open and and friendly and uh, sociable group of folks who really are interested in just keeping the conversation going. Mm-hmm. Well said. Matt Luder, for the third time, thank you for being on the show. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me. Glad to uh, <laughs> Glad to be here. And as usual, thank you so much to Robin O'Neill for your art and to the band Parquet Courts for letting us use your song Instant Disassembly off the album Sunbathing Animal. Go buy that. It's fantastic. Actually, can we give like a double shout out to Robin O'Neill and just be like triple shout out to Robin O'Neill if she hears this, be like, get well soon. Yeah, absolutely. Robin had a recent uh, surgery, I think. So we're wishing her all the best things for her recovery. Um and actually, Parquet Courts is going to be playing in Vancouver in September. If you're around, I have high plans to make that show. For real? Um, so hopefully, yeah, for real. I'll be I'll be back in in Canada in mid August, and nice. I'm going to see the band Big Thief that week in Vancouver. Nice. And Parquet Courts plays four days later, so I will very likely be there as well. So swing by, come see Andrew Savage and the boys. Hopefully play Instant Disassembly live. That's what I'm hoping for. Tear it up. Until next time.
thanks for thanks for filling me in on everything i missed matt booker and matt luter much appreciated see you guys for episode 40 Bye.